we've received some some uh, very, uh, let's say, letters, um, phone calls that uh, we're corrupting the youth and we're going to take care of you and, you know, and that type of thing. And uh, we actually had to hire uh, security for about uh, three or four or five months just to be there at this uh, our factory uh, to make sure that something really didn't happen because it, it was a real threat at the time. Hi, I'm Howell Ivey, creator of Death Race, Crossbow, and Chiller, and you are listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as ever with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic, Tony Temple. Hi. The Ted Dabney Experience is a podcast project that affords Paul, Tony, and myself the opportunity to speak at length with not only the leading lights, but also the supporting cast from the golden age of video arcade gaming. For this episode, we talk with Howell Ivey, creator of Exodus' infamous Death Race. Released in 1976, this was the first arcade game to stir a moral panic over video game violence in America, leading the company to hire round-the-clock security in response to many green ink letters and phoned-in death threats. Exidy followed Death Race with a relatively innocuous but very successful circus, which couldn't have been more cute and wholesome. Venture, arguably the spiritual forerunner to Atari's gauntlet, and then in 1986 right back into the arms of controversy with a genuinely gruesome light gun game, Chiller. Chiller is a game that, whilst admittedly amusing for all the wrong but deliciously right reasons, gave me the heebie-jeebies as an arcade-going 11-year-old and still makes me feel slightly uncomfortable to this day. To evoke author Bob Fisher, it truly is a bad boy arcade title of a haunted generation. Hal departed Exidy under somewhat difficult circumstances and joined Sega of America, where he oversaw the development of the company's early Virtua series of games and his long tenure at Sega saw him bear witness to one of the most revolutionary periods of video game design. As ever, thank you for listening. If you enjoy this ad and sponsor-free podcast, then you can buy us a virtual beer at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash tdepodcast. And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. How a welcome to the podcast. You are the author of 1976 infamous game Death Rays and also Chiller a light gun game set in a torture chamber. So it looks like we've got the father of the video game Nasty on the show. Howell, um, have you ever been accused of corrupting the youth of America? Well, I was accused of that right after the development of Death Race. 
But little did I know that that was going to happen. It was not an intention to do anything like that. <laughs> you know, when you hear the ongoing debate, even now in you know in 2022, about video games, you know, causing violence in society. Um, what's your opinion on on all that? Do you think video games deserve to be blamed for that kind of thing? Well, violence is all around us. Um, I think it may contribute, maybe. Five percent, if you had to put a number on it. But uh, students and kids and people today, this is a different time, different place, and the times are changing. So uh, I can't blame any of that on the video games or the video game industry. Um, it's uh, a different time and place at this point. Well, you were certainly there right at the start of the industry. You joined Ram Tech in in 1974, but you actually came from a military background. Perhaps you could tell us how did your time in the military did that help for uh, getting into this this new industry of video games? Well, when I went into the military, I went into the Air Force. I was in the Air Force for seven and a half years. I instructed for a while, and then I went to New Mexico and worked on some. Uh, uh, drones. Wow. Uh, and then uh, that was in the uh, uh, systems command there in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after that, I went to the satellite control facility here in Sunnyvale, California. Ah, now, that's yeah. at that point, um, my background was electronics and digital from analog to digital. I was, uh, let's say, highly skilled in telemetry systems and, you know, satellite communications and that type of thing. Wow. And actually, that's where I saw my first video game was when I was in Sunnyvale. Oh, what? Can you remember what it was? It was the Nutting Space Wars. Oh, my word. Computer space. The very first. The very first. Amazing. Um, there's one thing seeing a game like that. There's another thing thinking that you could make your own, particularly because games back then, they were not programmed, were they? They were all made in hardware. How did you go about trying to make a video game? Yeah, when I saw that game, um, I was very familiar with, uh, let's say, television broadcasting and uh, TVs. And essentially, I knew how uh, all the electronic works worked behind it. And as a result, with using digital and also some analog techniques, I knew how to to put some images on the screen. So when I saw that game, I said, that is a great idea. I can do that. <laughs> wow. Um, so you started with the word be sort of messing around in uh, your basement, perhaps, at home trying to get something on screen. You, did you literally have a little workshop downstairs? Well, actually, it wasn't a workshop. It was my second bedroom. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> right. the, uh, uh, I lived in a, an apartment in Sunnyvale here in California. And my second bedroom was just a junk room at the time. But basically, I designed and built my first game, I would say, in that bedroom. And it was just some speculation because I could say, I, I want to do it. So I went ahead and uh, created the first game. Um, did you then take that? In fact, can you, what was that game like? Was it, a, was it a space shooter, a bit like computer space? Or? No, actually... Uh, that was a time around Pong, uh, and I said, okay, the easiest thing to do is to take the next step. Right. So my, the game that I did in the back bedroom was, uh, it was similar to Pong, but in fact, you had two controls for each person, and you could move the uh, paddle 
all the way to the halfway of the screen. So you had a two-dimensional paddle that you could actually come, uh, let's say, towards the the net and charge the person and uh, you know so it was a, made it a lot more exciting type game at that point yeah, i see so you you hadn't just got um, you know movement uh, uh, vertically right horizontal that sounds brilliant so did you then take this um you know experiment this uh, primitive game did you then take it to ramtech did you sort of just knock on their door and say look what i've got well what the real story behind that is um Working at the satellite uh, control facility there in Sunnyvale, um, we had some technicians who was actually working for Ramtech, uh, fixing some of their uh, monitors and that type of thing. And they, um, he came to me and says, you know, maybe we should take it to Ramtech and see what they think of it. So there they, I showed it to them. And then essentially they made me an offer on the spot. And they paid uh, paid me two thousand dollars for the game. I thought it was a you know worth my effort in the back bedroom. And yeah. plus, at that time, they offered me a job uh, part time. Okay, because I was still in the military, um, so uh, I couldn't work for them full time. Of course, uh, this was about six months before I was scheduled to reenlist. Um, so I started working for him part night, part time at night, uh, and that's when I started designing actually Clean Sweep ah. uh, during that time. Now, um, Clean Sweep is the first game that you actually got published, and that's not just a, a sort of pong clone. It's a it's a really interesting game where you sort of bounce in a ball to clear a screen full of full of dots. Um, was it was it a challenge to get that much stuff on screen? Was that difficult? Well, actually, that was the time that uh, relatively small RAMs were becoming to be um, in existence. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, like a 256-bit uh, RAM or a 512-bit RAM was uh, very expensive at the time, but that's what was used for the dots on the screen. So taking advantage of that uh, with the new technology at the time was what can we do with it? Okay, so essentially, we made each one of those dots a RAM location. And when it uh, all hit that video uh, intercept on the screen, it erased the dot from the RAM. So essentially, that's the way the game was created. Essentially, that was all because of technology at the time. It was, it far, it was far different than the uh, paddle and ball type product. Had to be different. Yeah. It really felt, yeah, yeah. It felt like a, a step forward, yeah. Um, so, did tell us a little bit about Ramtech at this point. I mean, was there was there many people working there? Was it small, big? What was it like? Well, Ramtech Ramtech was a graphics company. They did some very large graphics systems for the medical industry, uh, and the video games was essentially a sideline. That wasn't their main product at all. Uh, basically, they used the video games to finance the other side of the business. Okay. Uh, so uh, when I came to Ramtech, they had done a couple of games and they were, you know, fairly successful. And then I essentially took over all the game design for them until I I left in uh, what seventy uh, six or so. Oh, I see. So you were the, you were their only game designer in those couple, you know, those couple of years then, sort of seventy four, seventy five. 
That's correct. Yeah, I did the uh, uh, clean sweep, uh, the baseball game, the trivia game, uh, and the uh, what wipeout. Yeah, that was that was like a bat and ball game. But let me ask you about baseball. Yes, right? because the uh, the baseball one seems actually quite ambitious for the time. You can, it's got recognisable fielders and a batter and a pitcher. I just wondered how did you go about trying to recreate a, a real world sport in the in the pretty limited technology that you'd got. Well, at that point in time, uh, not only rounds were beginning to, uh, uh, say, present themselves uh, commercially, but also uh, prompts, programmable read-only memories. And that's how the images got created in the prompts. So, and then essentially using the, uh, um, the prompts and a type of electronic sequencer that I designed was able to have the... the uh, Players run the bases, pitch the ball, this type of thing. It was like a, mm. a primitive uh, uh, state machine that uh, the design was uh, based on. Yeah, it also actually looks, I mean, physically, it's, it's quite an impressive cabinet. And um, I just wondered, I know you're doing the, you know, the electronics that are putting the game on screen. Were you involved at all with the, the cabinet design? Did you have hands on, any hands-on with that? Well, as, as you can imagine, during the early days, they were, the total design was totally, uh, let's say, two or three people. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and it was ideas coming from every place. Mm-hmm. They said, "Why don't we make it a stadium? It's a baseball." You know, so you know, okay, make it a stadium. Okay, well now we got to lay down the, the monitor to make it look uh, like a stadium. Um, and laying down the monitor uh, presented a problem within itself because at the time the black and white monitors were designed to be vertical, right. okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore, the the magnetic lines of the earth would kind of <laughs> begin to mess it up. So uh, we had to put uh, special coils around the uh, the monitor to degauss the monitor so it would lay down and be uh, uh, operational. Wow. You forget how much, uh, you know, how much technology is inside one of those things, even in those early days. Um, that game actually got licensed, I believe, to, to Midway. Is that, is that how things work then? Kind of a company like Ramtech would make a game and then kind of produce it themselves or shop it around. Is that how it worked? Well, yeah, that the Ramtech didn't have a large distribution because it was a small company and didn't have the the resources or wanted to dedicate the resources to the manufacturing of it. Uh, it did manufacture it, but we could get more money by licensing the boards and selling the boards to Midway oh, without uh, you know, actually any capital uh, expense to do that. Therefore, that's when the licensing and the whole industry began to start uh, because of the uh, uh, manufacturing capabilities that they had that uh, Ramtech did not have. I see. And just you did mention that you were based in Sunnyvale. And when we hear that name and when our listeners hear that name, of course, we'll think of Atari. Were you physically very close to Atari at that point? Well, Atari was always within, let's say, uh, three, four, five miles. Okay. That's through the entire, uh, let's say, uh, between the early 70s through the 2000s. You know, it was still within, let's say, five miles. So did we interact with them very much? Not really. Um, mostly at trade shows, but uh, 
There wasn't any cross-pollination there. Did you see yourself as kind of, a, I mean, Atari, you know, with the ones that first kind of broke the coin-op business. Did you see yourself, uh, Ramtech, as a, as a major competitor to Atari? Well, at that point, it was more of a uh, just uh, with your head down producing games. So it wasn't a a a large overview uh, at that time to really to be concerned with. It was just the next game. Hi, Hal. Uh, so after your time at Ramtech, um, which strikes me as, as, as being a relatively short period of time, at some point you joined Exidy. Yeah. Can you recall around what date that would be? That would be uh, 76. 76, okay. And, and Exidy, of course, was founded by... Uh, Pete Kaufman in 1973. Yeah. Did you have some connection with uh, Pete? Well, he came from Ramtech originally. Okay. But I did not know him. I came to Ramtech after he had left. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had no real connection with him except for uh, meeting him uh, essentially for the first time around 75. Yeah. Got it. And how was Exidy when you arrived? Was it was it a big change from? Ramtech or, or sort of similar setup? Well, the the history behind that is the original game designer and uh, engineer at Ramtech is, uh, was a name of uh, uh, John Metzler. And he left Ramtech and did some games for, for Pete. He did one of the first games for Pete. And he actually did the original design for the Destruction Derby. And then I worked for John there at Ramtech, and I think John is the one that really recommended uh, that uh, Pete go after me at Ramtech to replace uh, uh, John there at Exidy because he was consulting for him because John wanted to go off and do his uh, different company, a graphics company, Grinnell Systems. Okay, so your role was literally stepping into the shoes of John. Uh, that's correct, yes. And, and what... What exactly did, did that involve, Howell? Well, essentially, when I first got there, uh, the, they had already licensed the game Destruction Derby to Chicago Coin. And when they uh, licensed it to Chicago Coin, we were also manufacturing the uh, Destruction Derby, uh, Demolition Derby, mm -hmm. uh, there in our own facility. And the Chicago Coin was taking most of the business. Mm -hmm. and. Because we licensed, Exidy licensed uh, Chicago Coin to manufacture it, they were doing a, a decent job in manufacturing them. But unfortunately, Exidy wasn't being paid. Right. Because Ch Chicago Coin was was uh, in desperate needs of uh, of cash or money. They eventually went bankrupt. Mm. But uh, uh, no, we did not get paid from uh, Chicago Coin. It's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, I. You know, I wonder from a from a commercial perspective. Um, you know, back at that time, when you licensed the game to another manufacturer, presumably, presumably, the hope was whilst the margin would be less than building a complete cabinet and selling it yourselves, given the volume that one hopes uh, Chicago Coin could deliver, that would ultimately deliver a larger uh, uh, sort of you know cash return. Essentially, it would be a little bit more than that, because Exidy. Uh, when I got there, basically it was only 12 people, you know. Okay. Uh, so it was a very small company, limited production, and access to the distribution network, uh, Exidy was completely unknown, okay. So did, uh, you know, the early games, 
Exidy did some early games in the for the West Coast and this type of thing, but very limited uh, nationwide. So uh, the access to the distribution network and the production facility made more sense at the time to uh, to give it to someone that could put the games on the marketplace faster than we could. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that. One thing I wanted to ask you was um, back in the mid-70s, my assumption from the outside in is that it would have been a, a relatively level playing field. So obviously Atari and Williams sort of dominated the market later on in the early 80s. But in the mid-70s, did Exidy have as much chance as some of those other established players at the time? Or to your point, was distribution and, and, and access to a manufacturing facility an issue? Well, that was uh, really an issue at the time because Chicago Coin, you know, they did pinball machines. They did uh, uh, a lot of different machines for the arcade and they have been around for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they already had that established. The problem was, uh, again, with XZ being a, a new new uh, kid on the block. Now all the all the other manufacturers were still in the same uh, let's say the same level of playfield as you were saying. Uh, so we were trying to find our place in the market. So Exidy had this game Destruction Derby, which was already sort of um, done and dusted when you walk through the door. Um, one of your early tasks was to monetize, presumably, this this game, Destruction Derby. I, d- I, d- I just wonder if you can tell us the story about how, how Destruction Derby evolved into Death Race. Well, it's a quite simple story. As I mentioned before, uh, Chicago Coin wasn't paying us, uh, and we had to come up with a game very quickly. Uh, so essentially, I went into the... Uh, uh, design of the uh, Destruction Derby. I changed some of the images and prompts. I changed some of the audio uh, background and audio responses. And it did change. I changed it into Death Race. Mm-hmm. Now, to say that it was uh, a an intentional to make it controversial, never. It was more of a survival issue. How can we get something on the street that's different and make money with it so we can pay the employees sure so that way that's how it came about and i mean you mentioned it wasn't it, it wasn't your initial intention to be controversial but you know ultimately you made a game about running over people um we were at all concerned that that people might take offense or did the backlash come as something of a surprise quite frankly it was a little bit of a surprise wow uh, maybe we were naive uh-huh. But uh, certainly I was, but the controversy did grow and grow. Uh, it got fairly, uh, I would say, fairly controversial uh, towards the end of the production run. Mm. And I'm right saying um, you and other people at XD started receiving threats from people who were so outraged? I, actually, we did. We received some, some uh, very, uh, let's say, letters um, phone calls that uh, we're corrupting the youth and we're going to take care of you and, you know, and that type of thing. And uh, we actually had to hire uh, security 
for about uh, three or four or five months just to be there at this uh, our factory uh, to make sure that something really didn't happen because it it was a real threat at the time. Yeah, I'll bet. It's interesting um, watching, there's a couple of videos on YouTube um, of Exidy employees sort of defending the, the game in, in some ways. And um, one of the lines that was put out was that um, in the game, the player isn't running over people, but they're running over gremlins. That was essentially the uh, original storyline. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, if you look at the artwork and the graphics, uh, you know, there wasn't any real people there. They were more of ghosts and goblins and and gremlins and those type of things even depicted on the artwork. So to say that it was equal to a real life situation, uh, no, that wasn't the original intent. But obviously, if you got somebody looking, uh, running around that looks like a a uh, normal person, uh, even though it was in very small block letters, you know, it was. Uh, uh, it turned out to be very controversial. As the saying goes, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Um, we're assuming that the con- controversy over Death Race didn't harm sales of the game. Well, quite frankly, it helped the game quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, the uh, publicity. And essentially, you can say that Death Race brought Exidy from a unknown identity to a major player at that time in the industry. How high? Um, hi. Hi. Um, so, as you say, Death Race helped put Exidy on the map, and um, you followed it up a year later, a year after that, with another successful game being Circus, which has you controlling a seesaw and bouncing around a pair of clowns to to burst, I think, about two or three levels of balloons. It's very cute and wholesome, How Was that, was that a deliberate... Um, zag away from the controversy of Death Race, or was it just was it just you guys wanting to do something completely different? Well, doing something completely different. Uh, it wasn't a uh, uh, believe me. The controversial part of Death Race uh, only increased the sales. So if we mm. uh, could come up with something that was better to increase sales, maybe we would have. But uh, it was. Basically, in, in the games industry at the time and even now, difference sells. So if you do something different, then you are able to capture the market and the, the player and the identity uh, uh, of a, a genre. And that's what we tried to do with Circus, which was very successful in that regard. Yeah, and capture the market, it did. I mean, being licensed to Midway, who released it as Clowns, um, Taito as Acrobat, Sega as uh, Seesaw Jump, I think. Yes. Um, and again, this is probably rehashing what you were talking about with Tony and Paul, but you know, this was a business model at Exidy, make a good game and then sell it to as many other companies as possible? Well, at the time, uh, of course, Exidy being a U.S. company, um, we had no access to uh, the Japanese market and the the uh, Midway uh, with their distribution. There was a little bit different distribution network. Yeah. So we were able to to capture a little bit different distribution network at the time, plus an international market. And that's how we got into the a lot of the international market by licensing to begin with, and then we began to sell. Uh, containers worth of product later on yeah i mean I, I i don't know i'm just guessing but i would say that circus probably was a hit in japan 
or am I just taking a stab in the dark there? No, it was a very hit, very uh, good hit in, in Japan. Yeah, because it fits their uh, style and uh, play style there in Japan yes. very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were trying other things at Exidy. Um, for example, Robot Bowl from '77, which which does what it says on the tin. You take a robot ten pin bowling. Um, so you know, in the same way that Atari had their um, infamous, famous, whatever brainstorming sessions. Did you have a, you presumably had a similar thing going off at Exidy where you had your weekly or monthly meetings and who who had ideas for whatever game, right? Like occasionally, let's say once or twice a year, we would even take our entire company. At the point uh, around that time, it was only 30 or 40 people. We would take them down to Baharo Dunes and take, get about three or four buildings and be there for about three days. And Sorry, say, say, what, take them where? To the dunes, did you say? Yeah, Baharo Dunes. That's uh, a little bit north of uh, Monterey, between Monterey and Santa Cruz. You might have to elaborate a little there. What's What, what goes off in, uh, in the dunes? Well, okay. They're... What happens in the dunes stays in the dunes. <laughs> yeah, they, there's a whole complex of uh, houses and buildings that can be leased. Right. We would take essentially uh, the entire company down, okay, for about three or four days and uh, in the evenings and the afternoons, we would just have sessions of idea sessions because ideas can come from any place. Uh, like a, so this is like a writer's retreat for you guys at Exidy, basically. Yeah, it, you might say that. I mean, we, but we included the entire company. It wasn't just the right. uh, executives. It wasn't you know just the uh, engineering staff. It was everyone. I mean, it, because when you're running a company, the best thing to do is have everybody included and everybody contributes. And that is the way that I've run a company, you know, uh, in the past and do it now is everyone's important. Yeah, that's a admirably egalitarian uh, way to go, isn't it? A flat hierarchy like that in some ways. Um, I'm just looking at the, the cocktail cabinet for Robot Bowl. It's quite, <laughs> it certainly looks like it's going to work in a cocktail bar. Well, the, the ca- there's, a, there's a story behind that cabinet. Uh, by the way, um, the uh, you know there were several small smaller manufacturers around at that time, um, having some success and not so success. Um, and they happened to be a company that had about a thousand cabinets. There was a driving game, and they had a uh, accelerated foot pedal on it. Uh, but those cabinets were available, so we as Exidy we bought those cabinets. Okay, and then we label the accelerator portion at the bottom "ball return." Okay, excellent. Just to yeah. to take uh, your know, advantage of it, because uh, building the cabinets is a large part of the uh, expense of the of the uh, uh, of the products. So uh, that's how that particular cabinet came to be. Is uh, uh, I say started off as surplus, but then we had to remanufacture it. So ah, so but so this is for the regular, if you like, stand-up. Um, That's correct. Version, yeah, sure, sure, yeah. And the the cocktail table, uh, the cocktail version itself is also quite interesting. Being essentially, lit- quite literally, being a cocktail table rather than just taking its namesake. And look, it's a really nice little cab cabinet. Yes, yes, yeah, certainly, certainly would, will work well in would, a bar. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the first uh, you know cocktail tables. Uh, 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 around 
uh, and it fit very well. Yeah. So this was this was Exidy's effort to to perhaps make inroads into more sophisticated venues, um, quote unquote. You know, wine bars perhaps was was that the idea? Yeah, into bars, and uh, you could actually bet on it, you know, on the side. So it made a, a nice little uh, <laughs> okay. uh, uh, added addition to the to the bars sure. and that type of thing, rather than just playing dice. Excellent, sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about Starfire. Um, obviously, quite obviously, based on on the Tie Fighter, you know, sequences from Star Wars, and and stealing the logo, um, of course. But still, quite cute, and I, li- I like the targeting re- um, ret- ret- reticule. Reticule? Am I pronouncing that? Reticule. Yeah. Um, Ed Log, coder of Asteroids, says he took the idea for a player entering their initials when they achieved a high score from from Starfire. As far as you're aware, was was Exidy the first to introduce that particular high score feature? Yes, it was. That was the first time that high score features and you could put your initials into the game was on that particular game. Mm. And tell me more about the, you know, again, the obvious influence. I mean, Star Wars was obviously such a huge cultural phenomenon um, during those years. Was it, was it just like the go-to, you know, Starfighter shape is like, hey, let's just do a TIE Fighter shape because that's what's going, that, what, that's what the player is going to be drawn to. Was that the case? Well, that, that was a case, but on the uh, Starfire, we did not design that game in-house ourselves. Ah, Okay. We licensed that game from Ted Machan, who had his, uh, he designed a game uh, in Southern California, and we licensed it from him. Right. Interesting. So that was one of the only games that uh, Exidy ever licensed. Uh, but we did some innovative things with the, uh, it was a first sit down cabinet, enclosed sit down cabinet for that game. Yeah. Um, and actually, it, we did have a little bit of motion to it also tell me though Hal. i mean you know you now you know if you put a tie fighter in a game now in 2022 uh, disney will be will be knocking on your um virtual door in about two seconds flat but but back then um it was this was clearly you you, you clearly had free reign to kind of just go with that kind of thing i mean it obviously wasn't an issue or, or am i wrong did you did you hear from anybody i never heard from anybody and i as you say, uh, it was almost a free game at that time because uh, the uh, video games industry was just emerging as something. It's uh, is it a fad? Is it going to stay? You know sure. this type of thing. Yeah. So, uh, would it be worth it to uh, for one of the large companies to come down hard on those very small manufacturers just trying to do things? So, uh, yeah, you sure. know, that. That probably played a little bit on it. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And just going back to the high score um, table as we were talking about, apparently if you enter SKO on the high score table, the machine prints High Susan and DBR gives you High Dave. Uh, can you enlighten us to who these two people are? How? Well, uh, Susan was Ted Machan's girlfriend. Okay, right. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think Dave was another guy that worked on the... Uh, uh, the product. Um, one more, one more intriguing game from the start of the eighties we want to ask you about is Venture. It's um, I was I was checking this out on Mame um, uh, earlier on today, and it's it's a really early example of an arcade adventure. You know, a genre that had legs in both the arcade and on home computers. And, and Atari often gets the credit or all the credit for innovating during this period. So, how? 
do you think Exidy's contribution um, to the arcade adventure has been overlooked? Well, yeah, the uh, the whole idea behind Venture was we were playing a- adventure, a paper adventure during that time, mm. uh, you know, among the different people. And we said, well, let's make a game that tries to capture some of that idea of mm-hmm, the uh, mm-hmm. the venture aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how Venture did come about uh, with uh, and the creation of Winky, the little uh, little guy with the... Uh, the arrow, you know, born arrow in his head. Yeah, it's sort, of, <laughs> sort of like uh, it, it goes from being a dot to um, to an actual little character when it zooms in. I love that zooming in mechanic. I think it's um, it's really cool. It reminds me, Tony. You may well have to come in here in here, but the whole kind of zooming in mechanic is sort of reminiscent of. Oh gosh, it's not reactor. Am I thinking reactor, Tony? You might- yeah, reactor does it too. Gravitar, aren't you thinking of? No, well, yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, okay, fine. That oh, but anchor. Re- react- yeah, what's it? Anchor R. Anchor R. Anchor yeah. R. Yeah, and Anchor R was by Mike Alley was on that one. Yeah, sort it? of free associating now. Yeah, so <laughs> so it, it, it kind of it kind of reminds me a little bit of Anchor R by Mike Halley um, at Atari, but I mean that's obviously just coincidental. But it's uh it's kind of cute how he goes. From a little dot that you're guiding around the screen, screen and you zoom in. Um, you know, when, when Atari came out with Gauntlet in the mid '80s, did you did you think, well, you know, we started that whole D and D style game with Venture, or did it not even occur to you? What's what's the deal there? It never occurred to us. Uh, it never occurred to me because uh, uh, we were uh, still trying to make our next game. That was our yeah. main emphasis. Uh, you're only as good as your last game. And you only sell a game for maybe six to nine months and you got to have another product. So it was, you know, that gave us ups and downs as far as uh, manufacturing and, and people and, and this type of thing within the, the factory. So uh, it was difficult keeping that going. But at the same time, as an engineering, it gave us the opportunity to try anything new. Okay. Yeah. The uh, technology technology was changing, therefore, the newest technology you could take advantage of it, or just try something. You know, just uh, we had that uh, 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 mentality, just to go out and do it. Yeah. It also reminds me a little bit of Berserk, which um, I'm, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was an influence. Maybe not. Maybe that's coincidental. And you've got this kind of, um, I guess, crazy Otto style guy who if you don't get through the room in time sort of chases you down was right. berserk an influence uh i would say no oh okay fine so great <laughs> yeah, minds think yeah, alike I rather mean, than an influence uh yeah i mean it is um and the development of uh uh a venture it was uh um uh, it was one of the the crush times we needed a product right uh it was in the different uh, sections of the game uh, from in the room uh, type of programming to the overall executive programming to these to the uh, 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 hallway type programming. So that was somewhat divided up between uh, the three of us, and uh, uh, we were able to produce a product a lot faster by dividing up those types of responsibilities. And previous to that, it was essentially one person and one game. Yeah. So okay. it was uh, uh, a little bit different uh, approach, and it uh, and it worked out on that particular game. A lot of times it doesn't. Sure. 
Can I just ask who um, who came up with the name Winky for uh, for, the, for the character? I, I think that was probably Pete Pete Cuthbert. Right, and poor little Winky is did, did he feature in any other any other Exidy games? Um, you know, perhaps in in any prototypes. Any was he was he a character you perhaps attempted to take into any other any other ideas, or did he just stay stay with Inventure? I think he stayed with Inventure, but if I on hindsight. We could have taken that character a lot further mm. as a uh, a logo, an indication, a uh, also being seen in different games to make it a overall uh, uh, larger exp- uh, experience than what it really was. So, uh, yeah, I think we should have done better with that. Sure. And just before I finish my section, I actually want to take you right back to the start. And you mentioned, um, you said you were working on drones for the Air Force. Yes. Down in New Mexico. And, you know, listen, I'm really sorry, but the first thing that springs to mind when you say drones uh, in New Mexico is like UFOs and Area 51. <laughs> come on, come on, Hal. Were you, were you involved in any uh, secret government projects? Well, some of the work that I did there in New Mexico was classified. Uh-huh. But it didn't have anything to do with UFOs. The oh damn it! Go the uh, the drones that I'm talking about were jet aircraft. Okay. Yeah. They were uh, had about a, a 15 foot wingspan, uh, altitude of 60,000 feet, 600 miles an hour. The old type uh, uh, type products. So uh, and it, it they were used a lot in. Uh, uh, Vietnam for reconnaissance and those type of things. Right, right, but but rec- quite recognisably an aircraft shape and nothing nothing as exotic as anything that could be mistaken for anything more uh, more fanciful. No, they were uh, fixed wing aircraft painted bright orange. When we do our Area Fifty One podcast, we're having you back on. Uh, Howell. Um, <laughs> well, um, I did go to Trinity site. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, uh, okay, Howell. Our podcast focuses on the golden age of the arcades, which Exidy was uh, certainly a big part of. But we cannot resist asking you why, in nineteen seventy eight. Exidy decided to produce their own home computer, the Sorcerer. How, why did you as a coin-op company think you could break into the home micro market? Well, the, uh, the idea of a home computer was not really uh, uh, Exidy's by itself. Okay. Paul Terrell, who was the owner of the bite shops and sold, eventually sold those bite shops, came to us and... Uh, said, you know, you have all the technology, mm-hmm. you have computers, you have video, you have, uh, you know, you have all of this knowledge. So there's no, it's a very small step from doing a video game to doing a home computer. Let's just put different criteria on it. Uh, and essentially, I went and began designing the, the, the Sorcerer at that point, uh, because one of the main things that a games company is always looking for is something to have a try and even out the production line. So if you can keep shipping product, you know, to pay overhead, you know, then you can mess around with, I, you know, ups and downs with the uh, the video game industry and and doing the doing the right game. So that was one of the main reasons that we got into the uh, uh, the 
the computer, doing the computer to try and uh, level out the, 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 the production lines and, and uh, have the capabilities there to do uh, increased type of games overall technology yeah no of course i suppose it's yeah it's something that you know it's not just a single run is it if you're making a computer and yet the sorcerer did have some early success but let's be honest it didn't really take off what do you think went wrong well the it took off very well in europe and also australia oh um uh, those two areas it took off very well um now in the united states you know let's face it mm-hmm. we were a small company okay yeah. and we were all internally financed self-financed uh so uh we didn't have any large funds for marketing or production uh you know we did sell a lot of product um and the the product line was accepted very well at at one time we had as many as uh, you know two thousand orders but as being a small company the easiest way to kill a product is not deliver the product you can't deliver fast enough. We couldn't manufacture them fast enough right. to be able to to catch that wave to keep it going. Quite frankly, I see. Did you? Yeah. Was the idea because I think it was more marketed as as many home computers were back then as a kind of sort of small business computer. Do you, Do you wish perhaps that you'd more marketed it as a sort of games machine, which uh, you know obviously that that kind of comes later. You would have been ahead of the curve then. Well, we could have, uh, but. The, the idea of having, uh, let's say, first-time programmers go in and begin to, to uh, develop games. And, but we did see it more as a business-type computer because it was, a, it was the first computer with cartridges where we actually had different uh, cartridges that plugged into. These were ROM packs yeah, yeah, made out yeah. of ROMs. They had the, the basic program. We had an accounting program. We had uh, a word processing program, so uh, they just plugged into it, and it began the the whole whole idea of uh, a diversified business computer before you know the advent of uh, you know floppy disk or anything like this for permanent storage. Our storage was on cassette tapes. Yeah. Uh, as serial cassette tapes, you know, yes. they work, yeah, 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 but they weren't so good for business overall. I mean, uh, until you began to get into the floppy drive, which was several years later, no, of, of course. I just had these visions that you know, you did have cartridges that had accounting programs. You know, if you got a cartridge that had death race on or something or car polo, you know, you did that, that would never cross anyone's mind at Exidy, like, hey, why don't we put our games on these? We never really thought about it that way. Um, we tried to run it as two separate divisions, uh, because of the different, uh, 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 let's say goals and, uh, uh, you know, for each one of those divisions on how you approach the business and how you did things. No, I understand. Let's, let's get back to, to coin up anyway. So, right. The whole coin up business, not just Exidy is going through a difficult time around 83 ish. Um, lots of companies are, are going bust and, you know, games have been cancelled. Was this the impetus then for Exidy starting their run of light gun games? Was it you were desperately trying to try something new in a difficult market? As I mentioned before, trying to do different sales and doing things differently is something that hasn't been done before, uh, done to an extent of of uh, being successful. Uh, and that's why 
I developed the the gun game, the uh, crossbow, and it. Uh, if you look at the cabinet for crossbow and all the other gun games, the big difference is the uh, the monitors at the bottom of the cabinet. So the appearance of distance between you and the screen is a lot further away. Therefore, you got more of a a, a feeling of actually being able to shoot something and it, it uh, having result. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're looking into the uh, a mirror. You're actually shooting into a mirror and that uh, it's actually reflected down, and the the uh, of course the the uh, monitor being at the bottom of the cabinet seems further away. It's about three or four feet further away than the normal screen, and therefore you do get that uh, illusion of death. I say illusion; it's a real depth. Uh, but uh, of course, everything on the the monitor is backwards. You know. But oh right, yeah, of course, because it's yes, yeah, a mirror image. It's a mirror image. But yeah. you know, on the screen, it looks like it's it's right in front of you, and that was done all with mirrors. Clever stuff. Now, I mean, uh, gun games have been part of arcades since the nineteen thirties with uh, things like Seabig's Ray of Light games. So we have had gun games in arcades for a long time, but they were electromechanical games. Tell us how your technology that you developed at Exidy. Tell us how that was different from what went before. Okay, previously before, you had uh, fixed targets in the back of uh, mechanical games. And those fixed targets, you would actually move the the gun to point it at, and it had a wiper underneath the, uh, the gun, underneath the cabinet there left and right and forward and back would actually make connections to see where you did uh shoot at the point if you missed you had no idea where you missed you know if it wasn't aligned perfectly it was always wrong i mean that was all the mechanical but essentially i eliminated all of that and put a uh a sensor in the crossbow for the first game and that was a with a lens a pin diode and a very sensitive uh, amplifier where I could actually read the scans on the TV, the scan lines on the TV. Now, if you notice those gun games, mm-hmm. when you pull the trigger, the entire screen goes white, but only mm-hmm. goes white for one screen, one frame. That one frame is where the sensor in the gun picked up exactly where you were pointing. It didn't matter where you were pointing. And then at that point in time, you could give feedback to the player of on the next, let's say, 10 frames, a splash on the screen of where it really hit. So essentially, the the sound of the gun going off and also the white screen gave it a little bit more of a, a uh, uh, an effect. But it was necessary so it would be an even illumination of the entire screen for the sensor to pick it up. Yeah, that's ingenious. And you mentioned that the first game that you used this uh, groundbreaking technology in was was Crossbow. Uh, We just wondered, you know, why did you go for a kind of medieval theme rather than perhaps a more obvious, you know, rifle game? Where did that come from? Well, basically, it was a continuation of the adventure type approach where you were part of a party that you had to protect your people. And as the people walked across the screen, you didn't shoot the people. You shoot the adversaries of the people of the uh, uh, that was trying to get your part of your team or your 
yeah, the people you were with. Yeah, it's it's actually it's what we call it now as an escort mission. Yes, in kind of first person. It's interesting because you didn't just pioneer light gun games. You kind of introduced some ideas that would be taken up with first-person shooters, you know, your dooms and all that. So you, you really were ahead of the game there at Exidy. Well, like I, like I uh, said, we tried to do things different and walk out on that limb. Sometimes we got sawed off of that limb, <laughs> but uh, uh, it worked out uh, more and more uh, better to take a chance than uh, and execute than... No chance at all, of course. Okay. Now, luckily for you, Crossbow was a really big success, especially at that difficult time in the uh, in the industry. I just wondered, did you all breathe a kind of collective sigh of relief when it was successful? I mean, even though Exidy had been going for 10 years, was it still a bit hand-to-mouth, How? Oh, it was always hand-to-mouth. Okay. I mean, <laughs> okay. when you're in the games industry, as I said before, you're only as good as your last game. And you could go for, you know, three or four months and not sell a product. So uh, if you didn't have the next game ready, therefore, as I mentioned, uh, it was always an R&D, always development. So, uh, yes, it was a good, uh, let's say, relief. And, and, and we did, we're, we were able to keep people hired. Yeah, of course. You reckon, you know, you've got... You've got employees who've got families to feed. I understand. What once you got this formula with crossbow of the of the gun game, you then get a kind of a, a string of other games: a Wild West theme one called Cheyenne, a World War Two one called Combat. Did you sort of think we have found a winning formula and we're going to milk this for all it's worth? Well, if uh, here again uh, we had good success on the, the crossbow and the follow on uh, follow on games. Uh, the market liked it, so uh, continue with it, you know, until, uh, let's say, other technologies came about. Yeah, no, fair enough. I just wanted to ask one thing, is that, of course, with all those gun games, you are putting a realistic-looking weapon on the front of a cabinet, which is placed in a public space. Um, did you, were you ever told that someone had sort of ripped off the weapon from a cabinet and used it to you know, hold up a liquor store or something? Well, no, I never heard that. Uh, but I could say that uh, some of them were uh, very realistic. But uh, one of the things that we tried to do is make it very secure and almost impossible to get out. Oh, so it was, it was a concern that people might try and wreck your cabinet. Then. Well, anybody, anytime you have uh, a, a cabinet open to the public and you have to consider each one of the people is uh, walking around there has a screwdriver and a pair of pliers. Okay. <laughs> right. So if you can okay. do anything That's with a screwdriver right. and a pair of pliers, it's going to be gone. You know, that's the idea of the cabinets and, and uh, uh, how you had to approach the, the public with that. Um, now, we wanted to ask about your final light gun game while you were still at Exidy, which is Chiller. Now, for the listeners that have never seen Chiller, they really should. Uh, it's released in 1986. And the first few scenes are set in a torture chamber and you end up shooting chunks of flesh from semi-naked chained victims, as well as kind of crushing skulls and triggering decapitations. Now, come on, Howell. Right? This time, surely you realised you were making a game that was going to be controversial. Well, yes. Right. Thanks uh, for being honest. <laughs> 
we we thought it would be controversial, but on our uh, defense, okay, there was a switch on the board that you could make the the uh, blood green, okay. Okay. Right. That was <laughs> that was your nod to respectability. Yes. So <laughs> if you've made it green, they become you know non-human. Okay. They become monsters that you're doing this to, <laughs> okay. and uh, and it was up to the operator who ran the location. Oh what color he wanted the blood and what color, you know, that all the uh, gore was going to be about. So we did think about it ahead of time with that switch. So uh, plausible deniability. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Do you know, if many, I, I'd be surprised if many operators did turn the blood green. Do you, do you know if many did? I think, I think some people did in different, certain locations. Okay. Yes. Perhaps in the, perhaps in the Bible belt, uh, possibly. Um, right. We, we do want to ask about this theme. I mean, that game, there's, there's people on kind of, um, uh, what's it, racks being pulled apart and there's knives flying. When you were producing this game, did you, did you bring in chains and axes and knives to kind of, did they come into the office for, I, for the graphic artist to work from? Actually, no. Uh, I I can't say that that. But it was all from the imagination. Well, you have to remember that during those times, uh, a full team of uh, people that, let's say, worked on uh, Chiller was only about three or four people. Okay. They were, we had no artists. Most of the... The art was done by the engineers themselves. Right. Okay, and I need I need to come in here. Actually, I'm sorry to interrupt. That really it it does have that kind of outsider art kind of <laughs> vibe. Does chill it, and you are slap bang in the middle of the satanic panic, aren't you? In America, I mean, it, you're asking for trouble, mate. <laughs> well, well, I, I guess I have to agree with you. Yeah, I'll put Paul take it up from there. <laughs> Very honest. I, one of the things we like about, I mean, it is still ironically quite shocking in the days of nowadays you know we have virtually you know photorealistic graphics there is something very weird about that game where you're shooting and you you know you're making a vice turn to crush someone's skull um i just think is that um I, it, when you crush someone's skull you hear these horrible screams of agony were they were they done in-house yeah all of that was actually done in-house uh that was all done by the three or four people that was part of the uh, 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 development team, okay? Uh, essentially, that was uh, uh, recorded uh, and put in ROM, and uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, let's say, uh, all the engineers and everyone, even, uh, I think the receptionist even got involved with that. Well, so, so they'd say, please come in here and scream. Is that was how it worked? Yes. <laughs> Right. Brilliant. Okay. Um, right. Considering it is quite a shocking game, we wondered, did you get much negative feedback? You know, was there calls for it to be banned? Actually, we got much, much less on that than Death Race. We got very little, actually. Why do you think, does that just say how things had changed over the uh, intervening 10 years then? I think there was uh, enough product in the marketplace that we had uh, other... Uh, uh, controversial games like snipers and this type of thing that was uh, uh, being produced that that this came down as a little bit uh, less than the top attention getters. Wow, it shows how things had changed so much in 10 years. So, Howell, just any regrets, including such gory scenes of violence in a video game? Uh, no, 
Basically, the whole idea is to sell product and have a, a enjoyable experience for the player. And the player is the one that's important uh, and try and give them what they want and within reason, let's put it that way. Um, Certainly stretching the boundaries of reason with Chiller <laughs> Owl. Come on. It, but it's pretty punk rock, I have to say. Of all the video games you have to, um, from that era, Chiller, Chiller stands out head and shoulders above above the rest for causing causing trouble, I would say. Yeah, I think I think for me, Chiller sort of sits alongside Mortal Kombat. I mean... And Carmageddon. You know, yes, Yes, you know, superficially, it's oh my god, you know, people's heads are being torn off and 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 limbs and blood splattering everywhere, but it's but it but it but it's so over the line that it just becomes comical. Yeah, it's just that was the whole idea, is to be so far out there that it becomes completely unreal. I think personally, again, sorry, just kind of riffing on this, <clears throat> the the as you say, you know, the art was done by the programmers, so I I think that slightly twisted outsider art kind of like weirdness to it actually means that it's actually quite disturbing (laughs) it's kind of it's not slick enough to be i can't put my finger on it it's just really really um it (laughs) it troubles me (laughs) sorry (laughs) and not much troubles not much troubles me that maybe if real artists did the images yeah it would be uh, you know a different game wouldn't be as good mate it uh with let's say unskilled i won't say unskilled because uh, the programmers and uh, and the, the artists that we did have were were uh, we had we had artists for the outside of the the cabinet the cabinet well, I mean, art the cabinet's beautiful yeah, but the the art that goes into the game there was no such thing as a a video graphic artist at the time so it was all done by the program programmers I mean the cabinet's kind of got a, like a like a like a, a classic EC comics horror vibe whereas the game itself is is slightly more. Um, on the nose, but yeah, no, point taken. Uh, Howell, so um, you left Exidy shortly after Chiller came out in 1986. So that was a tenure of, of just over a decade. Um, we, we were curious as to why you decided it was time to leave the hallowed halls of Exidy. The, uh, I was a principal in Exidy. Um, there were three of us that owned Exidy. Hmm. Uh, Pete Kaufman. Uh, myself and uh, Newsom. Uh, he was a, more of an accountant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he died about uh, uh, four years before I left. Uh, mm-hmm. It was just me and Pete at that time. Uh, we were going through some bad times at the uh, the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually went into Chapter 11. Okay. And uh, during that Chapter 11 time, it was about a year and a half that uh, I didn't receive any uh, any funds, any anything from the company. Uh, therefore, uh, it was uh, a pretty bad time for everyone. Hmm. So uh, at the end of that time, we were getting out of Chapter 11. As soon as we got out of Chapter 11, um, a, Sega came to me and made an offer that I couldn't refuse. Right. So I sold my interest in Exidy uh, back to uh, Pete, and then I started working with uh, working at Sega. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if if it was a difficult de- decision, but it doesn't sound like 
it was a difficult decision to make although it for anybody to walk away from a from from a role they've been doing for 10 years with a company they've invested so much of themselves in pre- presumably it it was pretty heart-wrenching to to have to get, to have to walk away it was it was a very hard decision hmm. um the uh uh but i had to do it for my family and uh uh, the future and the future of uh, of Exidy even. Uh, we had some dealings uh, after I left there at Exidy with uh, with Pete and also uh, we did some licensing for him and that type of thing. So we helped him out. So uh, okay, how much longer did um, Exidy run for? Um, just out of interest, uh, another I think four or five years. Okay. Um, so t- tell us about your role at Sega, um, Howell. Was, was this more of a management position rather than um, an engineering one? Well, it was, uh, let's say, a little bit of both. The uh, I, I came into Sega as vice president of uh, manufacturing for the U.S. and uh, essentially a liaison between Japan and the U.S. as far as engineering and uh, manufacturing. So the designs primarily were done in Japan, but the influence to make them Americanized came from myself and the other people there at uh, at Sega. So, and then all the technology that would be developed in the United States, I would introduce it to Japan and vice versa. Therefore, uh, it was more of a uh, engineering liaison uh, management uh, type position in the beginning. But w- was there an opportunity for you to get um, hands-on and ro- roll up your sleeves and actually get involved in um, game development? Uh, essentially, yes, uh, but it was more of a, uh advisory back to Japan, mm-hmm. uh, not so much in designing the circuitry themselves. Okay. Okay, because they had a large staff of engineers there that was uh, very capable of designing circuits and, and actual gameplay, actual... Uh, Americanizing it, the difference between the Japanese market and the U.S. market, uh, there is a difference. Therefore, you got to make it a little bit more Americanized. And did you get an opportunity to uh, travel between the two countries? Well, I've got over 2 million miles on American Airlines, if that answers uh, the question. Uh, I guess it does. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Back and forth, Japan, uh, probably two, three times a year. And then... uh, Throughout the the entire time at at Sega, uh, we were working very closely with them. Okay, so you're a, you're a you're in the million miler club in American Airlines, right? Well, actually, two million. <laughs> two million, right? Very impressive. And um, and how did you find um, uh, dealing with the uh, Japanese um, division of Sega? I mean, you you mentioned differences in how games are perceived in the States versus Japan. How did that manifest itself when you were in the boardrooms of uh, Sega Japan? Well, the there is a difference between the management of uh, doing business with uh, Japan mm-hmm. and business in the United States, and actually uh, in the boardrooms and 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 uh, what happens behind the scenes um, as a foreigner. Quite frankly, it takes a little bit of time to develop the trust. Uh, okay, uh, let's say after about uh, a year to two years, the trust was developed, and then it was uh, quite a different story. So it's uh, it does make a difference, and doing business with Japan 
and uh, United States. Yeah, we we heard this from uh, a, a chap called Doug Wismer, who worked for Electrohome, the monitor manufacturer. And um, he had dealings with JVC over in Japan. And he was telling us about his um, uh, you know, time in business meetings over, over at Tokyo, where you present your business card. Like you don't just put it down on the table. You, you sort of formally, you know, present it to the other. Well, guys. There, there is, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a process. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's an easy process. Now, what is not so easy is uh, uh, gaining the respect and trust from the from the staff uh, there in Japan, or the even the executive uh, uh, groups in Japan, uh, but once you, I have to say that once you develop that that trust and respect, it's uh, a pleasure doing business with with the company. Yes, I'm sure. Um, one of the first games you oversaw at Sega was uh, the Mighty Enduro Racer. Um, which, of course, where the player actually physically sits on a motorbike. Um, we're wondering if this kind of elaborate um, sort of sort of motion cabinet part um, was was something of a deliberate strategy by Sega. Uh, definitely. I mean, there with with that type of uh, uh, of cabinet, you know, it, it was taking it to the next dimension. You can vacuum form, make it look like a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. You can. Uh, uh, move it and begin to control things. It it it's a whole body experience. So it was taking uh, through the basic evolution of games. It was one of the next evolutions. Yeah, and and presumably it put some distance between the experience a, a consumer could have at home on their console and the kind of experience they could have in an arcade. So, so thus, sort of you know, as you say, pushing arcade machines to the next stage. Yeah, that was the time when the the consoles were getting popular, and there was a conscious effort to do something in the arcades that you don't get at home. Sure. And can you make comparisons between working for Sega and Exity? I mean, I, I, I would imagine Sega was perhaps a bit more of a corporate environment. Well, you could say that. Uh, one of the big differences, of course, I was a principal in Exity uh, as opposed to a, uh, uh employee, let's say, at Sega, mm-hmm. uh, but the people that worked for me at uh, at Sega, I carried my own my my own let's say management philosophy with me, and with that, I never had any problem any place with uh, people working for me or anything like that. So the were there a difference? Yes, of course. Uh, but was it a uh, uh, something that uh, wouldn't that, that's a problem? No, I can't say that. Interesting. Um, I wanted to ask as well, um, Howell, the the industry as a whole around this time, so we're talking late 80s, early 90s, I I wonder if it was a bit more um, considered, for want of a better phrase, just in terms of the way consumer habits were changing. And, and maybe there was a little bit more sort of thought and strategy into what games were going to be produced, how were they going to be released, in what numbers, um, sort of versus what, what was going on in the early 80s, which was everyone was diving in. People were producing Me Too cabinets, Me Too games, and, and you know, the whole thing clearly was ultimately going to implode in on itself because it almost felt like in the early 80s you could release anything and it and it would sell. Well, yeah, as the technology changed, as uh, it was necessary to do things more and more realistic. Now, one of my responsibilities that I mentioned before was 
to take the technologies in the United States to Japan and that type of thing. Uh, I uh, introduced uh, Japan to GE with their flight simulators. And as a result of that came the uh, first-person games uh, with the first uh, CG-type graphics. And it was uh, taking the agreement that we had with GE as a, uh, a joint venture there to take one of their, let's say, graphics display systems that, that uh, was, let's say, maybe five uh, cabinets worth and shrink it down to a PC board. And that's what the, the first, uh, it was a joint design effort using some of GE's technology and Sega's technology doing ASICs to shrink all of that technology down to give it a cost point that could be done with a, uh, uh, a, a standard, uh, standard type product to give it a, a CG first person uh, real type simulation. Was that um, Sega Airline Pilots or was it, am I thinking of, maybe that was a bit later? That was a bit later. That was a flight simulator. But the first yeah. ones uh, was actually uh, the uh, uh, Virtual Fighter series. It was the uh, Daytona series. Of course. You know, that type of thing. How you continued working at Sega through the 90s and you were there for some of Sega's biggest hits of that era like Virtua Fighter and Crazy Taxi. Did you did you feel as though Sega were by that point really leading the way uh, in the arcades at that point? They were major, a, definitely a major factor. Uh, there's always competition, but uh, yes, uh, Sega was in a decent position uh, with uh, the product, product line, and the manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, uh, I used uh, uh, subcontracting a lot in the uh, United States to build our products from about three, four different subcontractors. So uh, we were able to produce a lot for the United States and also for Europe and also South America. And it was a worldwide uh, uh, market. Yeah, no, 100%. If you, I mean, Howell, if you had to choose three games, three personal favorites from Sega's back catalog, or, or at least games you were you were around during that time, what would you choose? What what would your top three Sega titles be from the 90s? Daytona. Uh-huh. Um, I'd say Virtual Fighter and the, um, and the gun games, the House of the Dead or, you know, though though that uh that series because yeah, maybe sure, sure. you know i have some legacy there i don't know so what was it actually i mean you, you mentioned sega's gun games you know so from go from you going from exodus chiller and crossbow to did you did you see did you see the light did you see the um how do i put it did you wait when you were when you were working around sega's gun games did you think wow you know i was there in the early in the early 80s with chiller and crossbow and and this is how far we've come did you did that did you reflect on that well they, they used a little bit different technology than i did uh but the idea of a gun game you have a lot of different uh, genres of of games you know one being a gun driving paddling ball you know maze games different uh different types of or categories of games and gun became a a new category yeah sure but you got the you got the horror aspect of house of the dead and certainly the horror aspect of chiller so you got it you got a direct line there in some ways yeah um you know um so you stayed you, st- you stayed at sega right up until 2004 i believe which means 
you'd been in the industry for over 30 years, which is pretty impressive. And, you know, so you're in a unique position to really to comment on the huge changes in the arcade business. So what would you say were the key moments in the industry over that period? You know, the ones where you felt things really moved up a gear. Well, I would have to give it uh, credit to Tidal. I was I would have to say that uh, one of the turning points would be Space Invaders. And Space Invaders uh, uh, took the entire world. Yep. And then the next uh, main, uh, uh, let's say, uh, event would be the Pac-Man which also took the entire world. Yeah. But pretty much pretty much in a very short space of time those two games. What about what about going into the late 80s um, and, and and early 90s? What would you say? I would say the shift into uh, more realistic graphics because the the uh, technology had finally caught up with a lot of the ideas that we had in the 70s. Oh, oh, I'd love to be able to do this, but we're not there yet. You know, that type of thing where you got actually uh, uh, realistic scenes where you're in first person and, and second person type views to where you could actually uh, feel like you are part of the scene and not necessarily just an observer. Now, that that would be the, the main turning point of all, all overall idea of gameplay. It changed the whole idea of gameplay at that point. And a time a time of great change, right? So within 12 years, let's say, so from Space Invaders to, I don't know, or maybe like, let, let's say 15 years from Space Invaders to Crazy Taxi, you know, that just, the, the, the change is just phenomenal. Whereas today, you know, you can look back at games 20 years ago and Arguably, you can find games that are perhaps almost as good looking as what you're putting out today if you discount, because most people's yardstick is, you know, huge high resolutions and texture maps. And, right. But you can find you can find games from 20 years ago that still look as amazing as they do today. Whereas back then it was it such was, a... You know, pardon the pun, but a real game changer to be able to do that. I see what you did there. Yeah. So uh, uh, with that, uh, it, it brought new players into the market. Yeah. Because now... Uh, you had you had a little bit more it was still competing with the console. So, but in the arcade, you could spend more money yeah, to course. give them yeah. more realistic than you could on a console at the time. Yeah, and of course, in the arcade, you had bespoke machines with bespoke controllers that you just didn't have at home. Um, you left the games industry, Hal, in the new millennium, but not technology. So, uh, am I right in thinking you're you're involved with space exploration? Well, for the, the last moment? ten years. Tell me, tell me what you're doing. I essentially, my my two sons, okay, yeah, went to uh, uh, a school here at uh, uh, Valley Christian High School here in California, um, and my youngest, they started a program here called AMSI, uh-huh. and my youngest son got involved with that, and they wanted to do something that was different. So I got involved, uh, and it says we can do something. We can put. Uh, experiments aboard the ISS. Oh, the International Space Station. Yes. So uh, through a, a chain of events there that I ended up designing a system that is still being used, and I'm uh, using it year after year here now, uh, allowing students to do experiments, complete autonomous experiments of their own design. I give them the the component parts like the microcontroller, the enclosure, uh, give them power. But it's up to them to come up with the idea of what they want to fly. Meaning they have, essentially it's a nine-month program. 
throughout a school year. They think of the idea uh, in the, the fall or during the summer to where they come up with the different ideas of experiments that they want to perform. So it takes them from the fall start of school all the way through, let's say, March type time frame to conceive, build, and test their own experiment. Now, we launch to the ISS uh-huh. about once, uh, actually once a year around between March and May, depending on the, the uh, access to the, the ISS with a supply vehicle. We've yeah, launched sure. on uh, SpaceX, we've launched on Ares, we've launched on, uh, uh, out of Japan, and many different times. We've had, I've put uh, essentially 170 experiments aboard the ISS. Wow. The nice thing about it is it stays up for 30 days, and then after the 30 days, the they come back, and the students are actually able to do a forensic analysis of the what happened on board. Uh, but during that time, I download the uh, telemetry from each one of those experiments as photos and mm. files that they can see actually what is happening aboard the ISS within their experiment while it's on board. So, uh, and, and doing it both uh, internationally with different international schools from Australia to Singapore to, to Finland to, mm. to uh, the different parts of the United States, different uh uh, uh, states to different schools in the United States, and it's an overall, it's an overall program that uh, we've developed here that allows students access to do their own experiments aboard the International Space Station. Mm, that's amazing. That really is. Hal, thank you. That's uh, that's fascinating. You know, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking speaking to you. It really has. Where how. Where were you born and where, where were you raised? Do I do I detect a little bit of Indiana? Were you, are you Midwestern? <laughs> Actually, I grew up in Georgia. Did you? And I, right. okay. I've been uh, away from Georgia since I was, uh, let's say, about 19. Right. And I've lost a lot of my... Uh, uh, accent, but I'm, well, you've got a kind of like you've got, you've got like a Stroh the Martin cross with Jeff Bridges thing going <laughs> that's on. A good thing. It's, that's it's, a good thing. It's lo- yeah, it's a really good thing. It's 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 lovely to um, very precise there. Rich. It's a weird it's a, it's a it's it's a weird compliment to to pay, but I it's it's certainly a compliment. So I was curious as to where you where, where you were born and raised. No, I, I grew up there. Um, Hal, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you for your time and thank you for reminiscing about your your you know your time back at Exidy and indeed at so um it's been enlightening and it's it's a delight to hear about your projects with the iss it really is thank you very much well it's, it's been a real pleasure to uh be part of your podcast here let's do it again sometime absolutely yeah, yeah. i like i like how you've gone from computer space to the international space station so um thank you for all those stories i i think it was it's worth us remembering how some of the pioneering work you did at Exidy, whether it's, you know, the controversial subject matter with Death Race or, you know, the first game to have a high score initials uh, on a high score table. And I just want to tell uh, listeners, if yes. they don't know, you did a game in 1977 called Car Polo, which is definitely the forerunner to the hugely successful Rocket League. So there's so many times in your career where you've broken new ground. So thank you for sharing so many stories of how you broke that ground. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, that Carpolo was uh, a, a sort of unique. It's a hybrid. That's the first 
uh, microprocessor game. Wow. Well, there you go. Another first. Fantastic. And likewise, how um, I recall uh, going to the Funspot Arcade in New Hampshire uh, with none other than Paul and us both standing in front of Death Race and um, putting a couple of tokens in and playing the game. And I, we we must have played that for a good couple of hours <laughs> nonstop, Paul. And um, it's really fun. so it, it's an absolute delight to to have been able to talk to uh, the man in, uh, the man responsible. So thank you. Well, thank you for all the quarters. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.